Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. I am recording this introduction literally on my way to New York and then on to Burlington, Vermont for the first VCIA annual conference in person for three years. In fact, there is a good chance that by the time you listen to this episode, I'll be hobnobbing with many of the US captive industry's finest looking over late. Champlain. There'll be plenty of VCIA content to come on GCP over the coming weeks and months, but for our next 30 minutes, we have two very different conversations for you. One on the topic of maturing employee benefits programs, and the other on using a captive for financing pandemic-related business interruption coverage. Later, I will be joined by Lee Hall, senior originator at Munich Re Markets, to discuss his proposition for structuring pandemic coverage through a captive. But first, let's join Sebastian Wilmanowski, senior principal and multinational financing leader Europe at Mercer Marsh Benefits, and Casper Jensen, insurance underwriter at MESC, who dive into the details of how mature employee benefit captives can run their business, think about delivering value and delivering that value for their parent organization and how they aim to optimize their operating model. So Sebastian, with regards to new employee benefit programs first, is this growth um, still continuing and, and who's driving the interest within within the corporates that are interested in adding employee benefits to a captive? Is it, is it the HR? Is it the insurance managers? And, and has that changed from maybe three years ago? Thank you, Richard. And yes, in short, we do observe very strong growth in the market, and that's driven from two different angles, I would say. So we have mature captives that are more and more exploring outsourcing some of their core work, like underwriting services, reinsurance reporting, or also actuarial services, probably as part of their streamlining and optimizing their efficiency and operating processes. Also, there's substantial new interest in the captive concept. So this year, up to date, we have been doing more than 20 feasibility studies, and much of this is driven by HR. That's something that's really astonishing to me because two, three years ago, all of these conversations, the initial conversations were heard with the corporate insurance or the risk manager team. Now it's really HR taking the driver's seat in those conversations. And what HR is striving for is better and more consistent benefits. And that's what we think is really driving those discussions. Linked to that is, of course, that there's really no other option for HR to achieve these objectives. And Another reflection of this is if I look at the size of our team of consultants, which has more than doubled since, I would say, one or two years ago, and we're still barely able to keep up with the demand. Yeah, that growth on the employee benefits consultant side is is definitely, I think, you know, uh, quite broad. I think I've heard about that from from other practices as well, which which is great to hear and great for clients to have options out there. And on the HR side, I imagine probably word is spreading in the HR community about this this solution, and and people talk to their peers, and that's why maybe we're getting it driven more by HR as well. Casper, you're obviously experienced in this area from the client side. How long have Mask had? an international employee benefits program in place? And and what are the advantages that you're finding from from using the captive? Well, I would say we have had our program in place for quite a long time. But if we try to sort of set up a timeline, before 2016, benefits were managed and placed locally. So it would be local HR, procurement, finance, or whoever was actually put as the responsible person locally. They were the ones handling it. And therefore, we had very little global visibility. But then 
since 2016, it was decided to move into a captive structure, a captive that we have today and Musk has been in place since 2011. So it made sense to use our own captive for this uh, benefits program. So since January 2020, the EBI or Employee Benefits Program has been reinsured into the captive. But as you can see, then it took us from 16 until 2020 to actually set up a whole system and, and management program for us to actually be able to roll it into the captive. Uh, and then you asked about the advantages. Well, first of all, one of the one of the main goals, and therefore, of course, also one of the advantages, is to try to reduce premiums by having global leverage and not just local leverage. And especially, of course, you have local leverage on whatever fees and commissions you're paying, because now you go to just a few partners and then provide them with a whole global program with, well, all the fee and commission that might come from that as, as your point of leverage. Then, of course, given that you are now, you now have a much better visibility on a global level of, of what coverage is actually being provided. We then started to align our program designs, making sure that we had sort of some global minimum requirements for our policies. And therefore, we could then also start to align to either improve or change policies that were already in, in place in, in various local places. And of course, the whole transparency to see what the company is actually paying for their global programs is definitely an advantage. We have the enhanced risk management and governance, given that now everything will be collected into the captive. We have cost saving, but that's already a given. The strong governance, we have data and reporting. And simply just by acquiring this data, we get to know much more about our own EBI program, which you would otherwise expect we already had this data and this knowledge, but we didn't. And then, of course, a whole alignment, not only across policies, but also to the different markets. And then I would say some of some of the drivers for this uh, transition to, to a global captive-driven program is this transparency and overview and then streamlining of processes and policies. I think when we started in 2016, having identified all the different policies, I think we identified a thousand different policies, policies, and they have now been collated into a mere 300, which is still a lot, but it's, it's much less than a thousand. Of course, the whole control element, providing standard cover, minimum requirements, and then the cost control. So as you can see, it takes some time. It took, at least for us, it took some time to get to a point where we were ready to include it in the captive. But the advantages, they definitely outweigh all the, the challenges we might have met on a, along the way. Yeah, a lot of the good advantages outlined there, Casper, and just, just a mere 300 policies uh, sounds interesting <laughs> as well. So you talked about the advantages there. In terms of kind of the ultimate goal, or primary objective or, or aim of running employee benefits through the captive? What are they? What, what kind of, you know, what kind of counts as success? I think you can boil it down to two things, really. Better control and much more competitive premium. And of course, when you have all the policies collected into, into a captive, when you start gathering the data, when you can all of a sudden see the patterns that are hiding within the data, that allows you a much higher level of control when it's the captive that's taking over the risk, it's, it's much easier for us to basically require and implement various changes. And again, that leads to better control. And then, of course, the premium part. Any company would always try to get either the same coverage or even better for the same or lower premium. And 
at least the way we run our captive is that we always aim for a so-called sustainable pricing model, which of course means that we might not be as cheap as uh, as a new insurer that wants to win over a policy. On the other hand, you avoid these potential premium hikes and spikes, as you might see. So we're really trying as a captive to take out the volatility, provide consistency, especially in the premium, but also in the, in the coverage. It's much easier to discuss with an, a colleague. So my colleagues, wherever they're sitting, they know me. They know how to get in contact with me. They can simply just call me up and then we can have an open and honest discussion I, I like to, as I say, open up the machine room and show them how I get from whatever local data I receive to an actual premium and how we evaluate the risk. It, it really provides, again, that, that spills back to the better control, but also when I can show my colleagues locally that we can provide the same premium year after year. And if we have any changes, we can explain those changes and we can tell them how to get back to the preferred premium level again in the near future, that really gives them the competitive advantage of the premium. So Sebastian, I was surprised actually to hear that that the Maersk's program has only been reinsured to the captive for two years, of course, as Casper explained, since 2016, but it's been centrally managed as an international employee benefits program. What, what do you think counts or what is the definition of a mature employee benefits captive program nowadays? Yes, so absolutely. The, the Maersk example is a really interesting one. So Casper and I have been working together on it, I think, since 2019. And obviously, they had a journey that's longer than just the short period that's since they started reinsuring. But in general, I think it's difficult. You cannot really determine the maturity by the amount of time that a captive is reinsuring employee benefits. For me, the criteria are more about are we looking at a portfolio that's already in a steady state? So do we have a premium volume that's hopefully more in the range of 20 million where there's little volatility, so predictability in terms of the premium volume that we're looking at? Do we have access to some historical data to make these assessments that Casper has just described? And also is there a good general understanding of how employee benefits works? Because employee benefits is and is probably going to remain a bottom-up world with a different risk profile than what you would be seeing in the property and casualty world. Something else that we take into consideration is that mature means also the attitude that kept, that the captive has towards employee benefits. So are they about are they about short-term savings or are they looking after what also Casper has just described? So trying to enhance coverage, maybe take a little bit of a DE&I angle. That's something that many captives try to explore these days and help their peers within the business with. And also another thing that Casper just mentioned, how engaged are they with the broader business, especially with the local and regional reward leaders? So do they understand their people objectives, the challenges they are up to? Do they try to break up the silos, not just think of their captive bottom line, but rather think about how do they deliver value for the whole organization? So these are the things I would say that for us make up a mature EB captive. And we talk a lot on the PNC side, and I often ask our captive owner interviews um, on more the PNC side about kind of re reviewing their captive regularly right. and ensuring that they are delivering value. Do you do that with, with mature employee benefits programs as well, Sebastian? Yes, of course. So especially more and more mature captives, something that I tried to mention initially also is they are after getting a strategy review from an, from an independent party. So they want to test their operating model and see how it compares to, I don't know, let's call it best practice of what we are seeing in the market. And to give you a few examples of the areas that we would be looking at, I would say the very basics are 
some sort of sense checking or benchmarking that the pricing that the captive is offering is actually market competitive. We look at the fronting networks. We try to see if the fee structure they have in place is what we would also be observing for other clients of there are any rooms for improvement. And talking a little bit more operational. So one thing that we also do is um, if you think of a captive always has fronting partners, local insurers in place. And oftentimes we do see lots of innovation, especially in the healthcare services and the delivery models that local insurers invent. So one of the tests that we try to do is identify those key markets and see how does the local fronting partner compare to what would be, I would say, market leading in a local market. And something that we also try to incorporate is actually talking to the local HR communities to understand what are their challenges and is the captive actually helping or maybe not helping too much those things that the captive is looking at. So some captives like to be a little bit more challenged. And then, of course, we present them a very open and honest opinion and assessment of how they compare in, in terms of maturity, I would say. What, what about the um, annual activity cycle? Can you describe kind of what best practice looks like in, in that regard? We, we've been working together for quite some time now. And when we started uh, reinsuring, we had renewals of our policies throughout scattered around the year. The majority, of course, in the beginning of year, but not necessarily on 1st of January. As a captive, we at least prefer having as many of our policies renewing on 1st of January. There's a whole lot of, of advantages to that concept, for us, one of the main ones is, of course, that our our annual accounts, they actually start on the 1st of Jan. So therefore, we prefer the 1st of Jan renewal day. But in that regard, I would say, together with Sebastian, that, that an annual wheel when it comes to renewing and, and a timeline for that would be that January and February, that sort of time where you hopefully clean up after the renewal at 1st of Jan. So it, there might be a bit of information and data that needs to be finalized, but the majority of the time is spent on cleaning up, having status meetings. How did it go? How can we improve? When you then come to March and April, you perhaps have some time to undertake some claims analysis of what you have seen in the most recently shared data. Based on these 1st of Jan renewals, you can start considering on a broad strategic level together with HR procurement and so on mainly HR, I would say, whether there are any benefits that should be developed, improved, new benefits coming in, others going out. So a, a strategic approach in those two months, perhaps starting communication again to your local benefits teams with some of these considerations. Then May and June, that's where you really should have a local kickoff for that uh, specific renewal. So basically formulate considerations together with the renewal owner, so the local policy owner, perhaps some budgeting as well. Then when you come to July and August, I would say that's, that's when the local team starts requesting for the actual renewal, either to the local broker or to the local insurer, depending on whatever setup you have. And then the fronting insurers, they start preparing these renewal terms. Then September and October, you increase the pace even further. That's when renewal data is shared with the captive. You have renewal meetings between the fronting providers and the captive and the broker discussing what should the premium be, what about coverage enhancements, any perhaps structural changes. And then hopefully by November and December, that's where local fronting insurers, they release the terms that you approved and agreed in October. Local teams, they review the terms. There might be a bit of back and forth if that's needed. And then you start a bit of reporting. There might be some last minute changes, but really November and December, that's where 
what you discussed about the actual renewance in, in September and October, that is then implemented in November and December. I think if we take a, maybe a 30,000 feet view on what you've just described. So I think what we always try to check and see if it's in place is firstly those building blocks. So having a standardized renewal process, clear decision-making, aligned renewal dates, that's very important, especially if you want to assess the pricing more from a portfolio perspective and apply a predefined underwriting and pricing model, just as Maersk is doing. And then from there, we try to expand the process throughout the year. And what this means is basically the examples that Casper has given. So utilizing claims reporting that's available from the fronting networks, very closely interacting with the HR community. So one of the true game changes that we observe is when captives start helping their local businesses with budgeting. And how that's working is that the captive is able to collect claims data earlier than maybe a local carrier would, would be providing. So when the local business starts establishing their budget for the next year, the captive is able to set them a realistic expectation. So they don't just guess a number they put into their budgets, but supported by the captive, they will present a realistic view on what kind of premium spend is expected for the next year. And this way for everyone, the friction and the stress towards the actual renewal is going to decrease significantly because the captive is not only able to provide a realistic budgeting figure, but also the one making the ultimate decision if they can stick to that budgeting figure. And very often they will try to support the business, which is then going to make everyone's life easier. So that's really something, once you start having this level of interaction with your local businesses, that's very, very helpful for the business as such. And of course, also for the captive. Yeah, anything to reduce uh, kind of stress levels for anyone involved in, in running insurance programs of any kind is always very, very welcome. So as ever, kind of that, that forward planning is I extremely important. Casper, we had Microsoft on the podcast earlier this year, and it was the employee benefits team and the captive team on the podcast together, which was fascinating. And we heard from them that kind of importance of that close collaboration between the, the benefits or HR side and the captive and insurance team within the group. Uh, how do you view that and uh, do you kind of echo th that importance? Definitely. I think uh, Sebastian will laugh, but I've been told by Sebastian and the whole Mercer team that it is not necessarily a given that you have a smooth collaboration between the captive and HR and procurement as I'm experiencing. And to be quite honest, I haven't experienced anything but this smooth collaboration. But nonetheless, of course, it is paramount that there's a good collaboration between the captive and HR and procurement. Of course, procurement can to some extent step away again from the role as soon as policies have been rolled over to the captive, because then it is more of an internal matter per se. But the collaboration between the captive and HR is so, so important, especially because we can discuss openly how everything works together. So when I am, am seeing premium increases in the data that I'm reviewing, then I can directly discuss this with HR and, and, and simply they, they understand what I'm doing and I understand what they're doing. I like to say that uh, I would be perfectly content if I go on vacation to hand over the older underwriting pen to my colleagues in HR because they would basically, based on the collaboration we now have had over two and a half years, they would take the same decisions as I do. They know how I'm underwriting. They know my models. They know my approach. And they have the same with me. And that sort of uh, collaboration is just making my life and HR's life as well so much easier. Just a, a small anecdote. The other day, I was informed by one of our local uh, funding insurers that a premium had not been paid. And it had been outstanding for some time. 
It was, of course, just due to some a few misunderstandings. But nonetheless, I was able to directly get in contact with HR, even my local HR colleagues, tell them about the situation and, of course, the importance of the situation. And within 24 hours, we had it all solved. So I think that just speaks to the fact that it makes it so much easier when you have a good collaboration. Yeah, of course it does. And, and you mentioned earlier, Casper, about kind of reviewing the value and, and performance of the program. How often do you do that? And um, what are the kind of the initiatives maybe from the kind of the benefits side that can be prompted or operational side that can be prompted as a result of these reviews? Well, so far, we are still, at least in my perspective, fairly new in the in the EB aspect, even though we have now been underwriting for two and a half years. So, so far, what we have been focusing on is more the budget aspect of it. So if HR wants to implement this new coverage, how would we see that to impact the premium? But we have started looking to how can we use the data that we collect to try to improve claims levels? Because of course, premium is directly related to claims. So if I can work together with either global, regional, or even local HR to say, well, this is actually where we're seeing the majority of your claims, we might be able to, to impact those claims going forward. And then I can optimize the premium and provide my colleagues with a bit of premium. So Casper, just lastly, what would be your advice to other corporates, perhaps beginning their their captive EB journey? It's, it's rather simple to me. Do go ahead. It is definitely worth it, but make sure to plan well. And here, uh, it's not intentional, but Sebastian might like this. Uh, I would say the broker is indeed very useful and very helpful. The positive aspects of starting to take EB into your, into your captive is, of course, you add all these benefits that we discussed earlier, but you also get the risk diversification in your captive and you get an additional premium stream in your captive, which can then help the overall picture. Some of the negative aspects, and I think these should also be mentioned, is of course, with EB, that's uh, that's a line of business with a high level of claims. You too, uh, to some extent, you can even consider uh, employee benefits or at least the claims from them as, as a sort of commodity. You can almost predict how much is going to be used in the following years based on, on the historic levels. And then, of course, uh, for our EB captive, we started 1st of January 2020 to reinsure this into the captive. And was it in December of 19, 2019, where COVID really hit globally? So that definitely did hurt our portfolio to some extent. Not enough to me uh, suggesting that anyone should be deterred from taking on insurance. But of course, this is something to be considered. Maybe as a consequence of that, you could say take a long-term view. So that's what you do as well. You have a five-year time horizon for any type of performance assessment, I would say. Completely agree. Completely agree. Always, as any other captive, I assume, would be doing, you don't take in, uh, insurance into your captive if you don't have a long-term aspect to it. So, so yeah, for sure, uh, always consider the long-term. But I, I hope that for the majority of captive is simply a given. Paul, R&Q has worked with some very high-profile captive owners over the past 13 years, and the majority of those companies remain owners of sophisticated captives today. I think that demonstrates that transferring legacy liabilities is all part of the natural life cycle of a captive, don't you think? 
Yes, that's right, Richard. As businesses evolve over time, it makes sense that their insurance needs change and as a result, the profile of the captive and its role within the group will change as well. We have worked with captives owned by companies such as AstraZeneca, General Electric, Lufthansa and Unilever, who all have sophisticated captive operations and felt the need to restructure or shift their priorities. Offloading a legacy captive or a portfolio of liabilities can often be the most efficient way to repurpose a captive or free up much needed capital for distribution or new lines of business. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. Well, that was really, really good to hear from Casper and Sebastian, two great guys and, and good friends of mine, and their first-hand account and views on maturing employee benefits programs, the attention to detail and collaboration that must go into building successful EB strategy. Let's move on to our second half of the episode, though, and hear from Lee Hall, senior originator at Munich Re Markets. I have met Lee a few times this year, the first time being at the Seeker International Conference in Arizona in March and it is fascinating and and great to see someone banging the drum for how captives can cover business interruption losses arising from pandemics in in a sensible and structured way. As Lee explains, this strategy and product was already actually on the market pre-COVID-19 but naturally has received a lot more attention and kind of prompted a few more conversations at least over the past couple of years. So Lee, pandemic is obviously a a large systemic risk and traditionally the commercial market hasn't really handled these very well. Similarly, captives have their own reasons to shy away from addressing them themselves. So why do you think a a pandemic risk financing solution can be facilitated by a captive? Okay, well, I'd I'd probably uh, break that question down a little bit, Richard, in, in answering it. The key issue is accumulation risk for the insurance industry. I think that's well recognised. And I think there's many quarters that would say this is an uninsurable risk. And we're not naive in that regard. It really does require the mobilisation of many balance sheets. And so what we're trying to do is work with key stakeholders, governments, capital markets, and indeed captives, and alongside the insurance industry to try and create more capacity and bring a solution to the market. We call it an epidemic risk markets platform. So it really is trying to create a platform that can sort of facilitate collaboration and so that we can collectively address pandemic resilience. You you flag the the issue of the traditional market and that it probably hadn't served, I guess, served clients that well in the past. Um, and But I think typically communicable disease was seen as an exclusion anyway. And if it wasn't, I think people thought it was an exclusion. So it may have been poorly worded. And I think this risk just doesn't lend itself particularly well to standard business interruption solutions. You know, standard BI requires a physical damage to establish the loss. And so really, I think past solutions just haven't been fit for purpose, frankly. What we've tried to focus on is creating a non-damage solution, one that's also parametrically triggered. So it gives, I think it gives people much more confidence in terms of transparency, it's freely observable how the solution pays out. But what we do is we don't really focus on the premises of the insured. We focus on their value chain. So if their supplies come from China, there's an element of, um, I guess, enhancement in Europe, and then they sell to a customer in the US, we're trying to capture that whole 
value chain. So it's, it's quite a different, uh, different concept. So coming back to why the captive, and it's uh, that's a very good a good question. I mean, to some degree, I guess we've we've now done three transactions with captives in different sectors. So we're starting to see proof points that this meets the requirements. But also, you know, as a as a sort of observer of the captive market, we're seeing that increasingly they're being uh, used more broadly. Uh, there's a lot of increase in setups of captives, and I guess that's a function of some of the issues they're f- facing. Like like uh, the lack of capacity, exclusions in the industry, emergence of, of difficult to insure risks, such as, as pandemic, alongside the, the hardening market, obviously. But also, I think with this solution, you can also start to think about addressing ESG issues. And, uh, you know, I think that there is a requirement to, to tick the government bo- governance box for, for the C-suite. I think also, to some degree, you can address the S issue in terms of protecting employees. So I think, you know, I think this is a, a good time to, 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 to revisit this. And frankly, I find it a really interesting and dynamic environment to operate in. So very keen to work more closely with captive owners. No, it certainly is a very interesting one to, to tackle. And we, we know there's a lot of excitement and, and the insurance market moves in cycles. So obviously at the height of the pandemic and at the start of the pandemic, everyone was talking about how insurance can address these risks. But then, of course, people quickly move on to talk about DNO and cyber and they're kind of like the hot topics right now. Can you give us some background on this product, the pandemic product? Because I believe Munich Re was actually offering this pre-COVID. This isn't something you've come up with kind of after the fact. What kind of reception did it get from uh, prospective clients when you were pitching this you know, three or four years ago, pre the pandemic, and, and compared to the conversations you're having now? Um, I, guess, I guess, frankly, the response was fairly muted at the time. I don't think insureds could really envisage a scenario where this, this kind of cover was going to be relevant. So whilst we, were, uh, we had some very productive conversations, I think it was just seen as a, an expensive discretionary solution. Um, and there was question marks as to whether it would ever be useful in a, in a future environment. I think the other thing is we have evolved the product. It did used to very much lend itself to the old life insurance extreme mortality. So it was fatality based. And I think there was a general discomfort, I guess, that uh, your payout could be associated with something such as fatalities, which is kind of normal in the life insurance space, but in the non-life doesn't fit so well. So I think the evolution of the product um, has also made it far more, uh, form, far more interesting, and thus we've closed transactions more recently. So how does the solution work in in? In practicalities, then you've touched a little bit on it. Kind of, what is the exact type of trigger you're looking for uh, that everyone can get comfortable with, and, and what is the role of the captive and and then Munich Re's role? Well, I mean, primarily we've we've built it around the WHO's uh, framework for declaring an international public health emergency of international concern. I think that we're all becoming uh, familiar with that that setup, and we couple it with civil authority restrictions, and I I stress restrictions rather than lockdown, so we're thinking about stay-at-home orders, but curfews, gathering restrictions, the full breadth of of restrictions. So those are the primary, primary triggers. The other thing that people are really obviously interested in is how quickly can, can it pay out because it's one thing to hit the triggers and then it's another thing when you need that cash quickly for extra expense or liquidity. So we've introduced a, an affidavit process where two board members can sign off that there has been a loss and if there's a, a need to true up at a future date we can do that but the access to the cash is quick and, and reactive. And then how about the, the role of the captive and uh, Munich Re's role as well then? 
if I wanted to create uh, an impression, it would be that we're trying to provide a turnkey solution for captives, trying to do the heavy, the heavy lifting. So we become more of an enabler rather than just a, a provider of capacity. So we have expertise in data, we've got epidemiologists, we've got structuring capability, and we've got underwriting expertise. And as part of the solution, we like to effectively share that partner with the uh, with the captive owner so that they feel they're getting something more than just just our capacity but we can also actually crowd in capacity to the extent that there is a limitation on our balance sheet so we have good access not only to the the rest of the market but capital markets and other participants that are interested in this risk so you, you mentioned that you got kind of got a handful already signed up of captives uh, using or participating in, in such a program we kind of what company what kind of companies are these you said they're from a range of sectors and what other types of sectors do you think this will be particularly suitable for and, and how much capacity i think you know the golden question a, a company is looking for because i think the concern has been that pandemic is just too systemic it could blow up a captive if, if a captive kind of went and just kind of too far deep into it so that's the other other reason for going down the epidemic route rather than pandemic route is sometimes these can be quite localized events it doesn't necessarily turn into a global event correct and we i mean to be honest we are focusing on the catastrophic event we are trying to be there as the backstop, as it were, to some degree, um, for for a pandemic event. Today, we've we've done transactions with um, in education, in healthcare, banking, pharmaceuticals, um, industrial manufacturing. So it's starting to get quite broad. What's been interesting is the more footfall dependent businesses like hospitality, aviation haven't yet embraced it i think that's more a function of budget and 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 lack of 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 income but you know you take the aviation sector at the moment the it moved very quickly to reduce headcount when the pandemic came along and then when uh, things got back to some semblance of normality they've struggled to fill uh, fill roles we think this kind of solution could be ideal for protecting key staff in during the, the pandemic because you've got to ask yourself the fundamental question can the government step in for the next one and I think it's a it's a weak assumption to to think that they would if you consider that had the pandemic happened in 2022 rather than 2020 would governments with Ukraine going on would governments be able to have provided the same response and I think it's unlikely so coming back to to typical requests we're seeing 10 to 20 million dollars sometimes more it's not a cheap solution it's a rate online rather than than basis points so i think the i think the captive tries to achieve a sort of value for money outcome where it, it as i say it benefits from some of the additional expertise it shares in the underwriting outcome and over time because this is a long long profile they can build up capacity alongside us so um, yeah I think I think the focus is at the moment is primarily on extra expenses rather than indemnifying loss of revenues because that number is typically too large and your peer group is probably suffering from the same situation so it's more about coming out of the blocks more quickly perhaps than your peer group when when things subside from the next pandemic that's really interesting and I guess just lastly you mentioned about you know, obviously the, the captive's role I guess from Munich Cree's perspective as well you're keen to work with companies that use their captive as part of the program you see that as a, as a bonus Absolutely, absolutely. I, th- I don't think we can do this in isolation. This is not something that we want to monopolise. We want to mobilise balance sheets. I think the other thing is we just have to recognise that the way that the um, industry is evolving, if you don't find a fit-for-purpose solution for captives, you may make yourself redundant, effectively. And I think this 
that goes a, a, a long way towards addressing that so we can remain relevant to the captive owner. So thank you to Lee at Munich Re Markets, uh, Sebastian at Mercer Marsh Benefits and Casper, our captive owner at Maersk for a nicely varied episode. And I think giving listeners a lot to think about both are topics that captive owners continue to grapple with and hopefully that has been a very valuable 30 minutes in in many different ways as mentioned at the start i will be in burlington vermont the day of this release and the entirety of the week commencing 8th of august our next episode i am hoping will be an exclusive interview with matthew takamin the new captive practice leader at brown and brown and a guy that i've known for a long time really pleased for him in his new role so we'll hear from him and i'll also be conducting an exclusive exit interview with Vermont regulatory legend and you know near retiree David Provost um, we'll be speaking to him of course in Burlington we're recording a lot of other content as well and that'll be coming out over the coming weeks and months but in the meantime stay safe stay well and see you next time captives